You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike, Pensacon, New Jersey. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. So, of course, you all know about the, the border crisis. Uh, there are thousands of migrants coming to our southern border, and they're overwhelming the facilities that our government has placed there. And there's a bunch of fighting about it in Congress and in the media, uh, the president's favorite media being Twitter, uh, just going back and forth. And uh, uh, it seems like a war of words, but there are real people that are getting severely affected. Um, it's It seems... Uh, hopelessly wrong. I can't figure it out. Um, and you don't, you, I'm not saying you have to, we all have to be on the same page about what the right immigration policy is. I'm, my heart is just hurting for those kids that are separated from their parents and for the parents that are separated from those kids. And, and the fact that we don't have a just way to house them while our inefficient uh, asylum courts, uh, grind through their bureaucracy and people are being um, even killed. You know, the ICE stopped ICE, the Immigration and uh, Customs Enforcement Agency, stopped publishing how many people have are dying in their custody. They just don't publish that statistic anymore. What's that about? It's hurting me. So I'm thinking about immigration, and there's an Im- this immigration story in the Bible you know that I, that I had us going with this this story of Ruth, the migrant who comes from Moab, and uh, comes into the land of Israel. And the and there's a previous migration in that story too. Her mother-in-law Naomi goes on a migration to Moab because Naomi's home Bethlehem is plagued with famine. There's nothing to eat, so they have to go. And the first two verses of Ruth it says, "In the days when the judges ruled." which was kind of a lawless time. There weren't the same kind of political boundaries. There were no visas. It was easy to migrate wherever you needed to go, but it was also a very scary time. Not a whole lot of safety provided by any political structures. So in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Here's the migration story. The man's name was Elimelech, His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. I once had two fish named Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. And we'll, we'll see soon that the Moabites were the ancient enemies of Israel. They had, the Israelites had to fight their way through Moab to get to the promised land. Um, here, I'll show you a map. So those are the, the traditional 12 tribes of Israel and the land that they, that they took, um, that God had promised them. And then down here at the bottom, there's Moab. Uh, they, the, the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, kind of like the Rio Grande for many migrants traveling from Central America north through Mexico. The Guatemaltecos, the Salvadoreños, the Nicaraguenses, and the Hondureños are not so ancient enemies of the U.S. Imperialism has been an active force in very recent history. Um, early in the 1900s, all of these 
countries that are now moving to the United States were occupied by the United States. Do you know this? Ever heard of banana republics or the banana wars? It's not just a brand. Uh, it's, it's the, the U.S. enforcing its newly minted doctrine called the Monroe Doctrine. I know I'm doing a history lesson here, but it won't last long. The Monroe Doctrine said no other forces are allowed to be involved in the Western Hemisphere. The United States is taking care of all of this, and if you come and mess with us, we're going to fight you. So, like, France came into the Caribbean to collect debt on uh, Panama. They want the, the, the Panamanian government owed France money, and so they brought their navy in as a threat. And the U.S. scared them out of there, scared the French all the way out of the the whole deal, and then we had the Panama Canal, and we owned it. Like, we literally owned the Panama Canal until 100 years later. This is, this is what we've been doing. We've, the, the United States has been owning the whole Western Hemisphere. That's what the Monroe Doctrine really is about. Don't mess with us. This is our territory. We're going to exploit these people as we see fit. Here's Teddy Roosevelt, who was really good at creating the Navy that was able to enforce this doctrine all over the Western Hemisphere. In fact, one of the last things he did as president was he sent the, his new Navy fleet all the way around the world just to show everyone how powerful the United States was. This is the beginning of our militarism. But the project of imperialism was a stated goal. They wrote it out, and they said, this is what we're going to do. And some people were against it. You know, they, they were the anti-imperialists that didn't like it. But the imperialists won. They said, we're going we're gonna to control this. We're going to be in charge. Later on, we had, there's even more, more room for intervention in Central America because the Cold War and the threat of communism. And we destabilized all these countries again. They had only had like 30 years of self-rule, and we're back in there instigating uh, insurgencies because we're picking sides on who's going to win all of their civil wars. We're destabilizing their governments. We are destabilizing the monopoly on violence that the state really should have. And if your government can't say, no, this is the line, if your government can't enforce, no, you can't have that fight over there, then it really has no power. And so it's no surprise that in Honduras, the Salvatruchas and MS-13, those gangs that you hear about sometimes, they run the place. They run whole big parts of the country because we have destabilized their government. So, I think that all sounds a lot like the opening lines of Ruth. You see the connection I'm making here? These, these, these same countries that were Cold War pawns, that were imperialist pawns, um, they're, they're just stuck in a whole mess the, in the land of the judges. It's like the judges were like gangs kind of ruled the place, you know? And Israel is kind of like Honduras. Got to get out of that place. Let me go to Moab. Maybe they got a little bit better control on what's going on. So that's what Naomi does. She crosses the Rio Grande, the Jordan River, back to Moab um, down there and tries to make a living. And she does. I want you to know the whole story of Ruth, and I can't tell it better than the Bible Project does. Have you guys heard of the Bible Project? Um, it's this great resource. It's, it's a whole seven minutes, this video, but I want you to watch it because I want you to know about this resource and I want you to know the story of Ruth because I'm going I'm to talk about it some more um, in the context of, of what we're working with here. So let's, take, let's watch the whole video and then I'll be back up.
the Book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore, and so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard, and so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find Food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is she says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, 
Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer, who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. Thanks, David. So you got the story, and I'm focused on the risk that Ruth takes and the risks that all of the people take because we're working on the reward risk. We had us taking that, that, that migra migration journey. Let's describe Ruth's risk. She's in her, her own country. She, she knows the customs. She knows the people. She might even have family of her own there. We, we're not sure. She knows the religion. She, she knows Everything she has ever known is in Moab. And yet, she knows Naomi and chooses to go with her. There's a ton of risk in there. 
risk to her own comfort, risk to her sense of herself, her sense of belonging. She'll be a foreigner. She won't belong. And yet she goes. Orpa, remember Orpa? Oh, here, here, here she is. She, she doesn't go with Naomi. Naomi says, hey, you should stay. There's this, there's this tearful goodbye. Na- uh, Orpa kisses her, loves Naomi, but nah, I'm not going with you back to Israel. Uh, but the book is called Ruth because Ruth does this extraordinary thing. Orpa kind of does the normal thing. And there's nothing wrong with doing the normal thing. That's fine. But what's great is that the author doesn't tell us why they did it. One did this and one did the other. And I, I think that that's a great opportunity for wonder. And that, and that wonder leads us to empathy. What, what might have been motivating them? We just get to make it up. We don't know. And so we, we supply our own narrative. How might I have made a decision like that? Our, our own hearts fill in the gaps. What would I have done? Would I have stayed like Orpa or would I have gone like Ruth? What, what, would have, what would have been necessary for me to make a Ruth-like decision? Or what would have been necessary for me to, to make an Orpa-like decision? There's no fault in their decisions, but they're just so different. It makes you wonder, what would I have done? Who am I? What, what, what does my heart say? It's empathy practice. Over hundreds of years, uh, 25 of them, 2,500 years ago, this story is happening, maybe more. At least that's when it was being written down. And uh, we get if we can connect across that distance to this, these you know, ancient Near Eastern people, this history that we barely remember from Sunday school, and uh, this, uh, this person making this very interesting choice, if we can make that, that, that bridge, if we can get our hearts into this story, man, we could get our hearts into a lot of stories. Uh, we, we could get connected with all kinds of people. Like, we could, we could get connected with people that live south of the Rio Grande. We could get connected with people that are very different from us. So let's practice some empathy here. Let's, let's practice empathy with the other characters. There's Naomi. She's desolate. She's, she has already crossed the river to leave her own country. She's experienced this great upheaval, and, but she managed to get um, sons for... Or, or, um, wives for her her sons they happen to be moabites which is kind of disappointing maybe i'm not sure we had to leave because the the house of bread that's what bethlehem means the house of bread had no bread kind of a funny funny little detail in the story but can can you feel for her she's made all these sacrifices you know just just to try to make a living it's a desperate time and then it doesn't work out her her husband and her sons die yeah, you can under, you can understand why why you, she might want to change her name to Mara, why she might want to be bitter. Have you ever been in a situation where your your name might as well have been bitter? Uh, when when all hope was lost, when everything you had planned wasn't working out, when there was no bread where there was supposed to be bread, where the thing that sustained you no longer sustained you anymore. If we can get in Naomi's head and heart we might find our way into our own a little better. There's a lot that separates us from her, but, but she's in our family album. There she, there she is. She's, she's here with us, and we're, we're looking. What does her legacy offer us? And what about Orpah? 
There she is up there already. You get why she didn't go, right? It's totally understandable. The outcome looks bleak, so she turns around and goes another way. She could probably find another husband in, in her own country. I, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this decision. I don't think backing down from an impossible challenge is always the wrong thing to do. Like, you always have to just go for it! You might feel that way. You might feel like if you ever back down, you're a loser or something like that. Don't feel that way. Some, Orpah didn't make a bad decision. She just didn't want to go that way. And she did what Naomi told her to. Ruth's disobedient. <laughs> Saying, no, I'm not. I'm not going to go away from you. You know, maybe maybe you've been in that situation when, when, when you weighed the facts and decided, nah, it's not advisable to take that risk. You know, the house is too big and the taxes are too high to buy it. The, the relationship is too unstable and there's not enough connection. It needs to end. You know, this job is too volatile, too dependent upon variables that are beyond my control. Not enough health care. I better find some more secure employment, even if that job was very exciting and enjoyable. Backing down. It's not always such a bad thing. You can, you can find your way into that situation. How about Boaz? Presumably an older guy. Uh, he's a bachelor for whatever reason. And Ruth could have chosen anyone, but she chose him. Uh, he's pretty, he's ready to, to love her. He sees her for who she is, whereas the other kinsman redeemer that's closer in, in, in the blood relationship, wait a sec, she's a Moabite? No way. I'm not, I'm, I'm not about that life. Uh, but, but Boaz, uh, there's something about the connection. It's a real love story. You know, it's, it's, there, there's, there, there are odds against it. And, and he makes, he, he, he makes the connection and, and gets to uh, participate then in something amazing. And for Israelites, the something amazing, it's always the lineage. It's always how are we going to get to the king? And for us who come after them many, many hundreds of years later, those kings, that king David, lead us to Jesus. And the original gospel writers thought that that connection was very important. We're not so much a people of, uh, not all of us at least, are people of like ancestries where we can repeat our connection to, to our ancestors going back and back and back. And some of us have even been uh, violently disconnected from our ancestry. And so we, we couldn't do that even if we wanted to. Uh, but for the people of Israel, the, the story is bigger than just the one person. And the channel of blessing uh, must go on. And uh, Boaz gets to participate in a very important uh, bloodline. That leads me to think about how this empathy practice can get us connected with people who are strange to us today, like the Guatemaltecos and the Hondureños. All of that em empathy practice, you know, it's like imagination jujitsu. You know, you're learning the moves to figure out, how am I going to connect? How am I going to bridge the distance between you and me? person that is strange, person who just walked into my cell, person who just walked into my job, person who uh, has that bumper sticker, person who uh, uh, I don't relate to because they play their music too loud uh, and it's not the music I like. You know, people who shoot fireworks at 11.30 p.m. and my kids are trying to sleep. You know, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of separations that that we're, we're figuring our way. Okay, how am I going to make a connection with this person? How, how, how can I find my way into this person's story? 
How can I feel for them? Because if I can't, nothing's going to change. Nothing will change. One, I'll never have a relationship with them. And we believe in Circle of Hope that it's relationships that change the world. It's our relationship with Jesus revealed right here in his living body that changes everything for us and then changes the world out from that relating, that, that empathy that we are getting good at. Uh, it, it helps us to have empathy with these migrants that are on the southern border. You know, I've heard some people say, uh, you know, they don't have to be in the concentration camps. They could just turn around. You know, they, they, they chose to go into them. And it's just like, wait a second, can you just do a little bit of empathy here? What father takes his two-year-old into a river if he's not desperate? I mean, I'm a father. I'm never going to do that. And I'm a, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reckless father. And, I, and I'm confident about my swimming abilities, but I'm not taking my two-year-old into that river. You know, unless I'm, no, I can't, he can't turn around. And if you can't feel that, if you just divorce yourself from that person, you're breaking a really important part of who you are. Your humanity isn't made for that. And we, the people of Jesus, we're, are, we're, we, we recognize that we're made for it, and then we lean into it. We practice it. Our empathy is strong. It makes us who we are. It's extraordinary empathy. The kind that Jesus gives us, the love that Jesus gives us, the love for neighbor, the love even for enemy. And so we love our enemies, those that might not, that might not, that might be divorced from them. What happened to them? That they are so disconnected, that they are so disconnected from that empathy for that father and his son. What happened? How did, how did this come to pass that we are so separated, you and I? What, what's it going to take for us to get connected? How am I going to see my way into your story too? Person who says, turn around. Person who says, tough tuna. Person who says, it is what it is. I get it. It's scary. You, your job is not secure. This economy is not blessing everyone. It's blessing only the tippy top. And they're trying to convince us that the tippy top helps us. But I don't see anything better. The rent keeps going up. I'm not so sure I'm going to make the mortgage next month. I get it. I get why you're scared. I get why people that that are coming in um, looking for jobs, the kind of jobs that you do, why that's scary. I get that. And if you're feeling that, I get you. If that's where you're at, that's fine. You know, we're getting in touch with what's going on here. Because all of this empathy practice that we get from going from the ancient story to the people that are different from us today, it's all centered on us, you know? And that's just an acknowledgement of how human beings work. You make all of your decisions from your emotional core. But if we're good at thinking about someone else's emotional core, then we bring up our motivations to the surface and we're thinking about them. Oh, what is it that I do that connects with what they do? And now I can actually see what's driving me around. And, I'm, and, and I can get good at loving because I, this, this added side benefit, oh, I know myself. I know what motivates me. I might even be able to change it. You know, I don't just need to transform other people's. I need, I need to be transformed too. Oh, wow. I, I really do um, empathize with some things that I'm not so comfortable empathizing with. I don't, wanna, I don't want that to be me. All this empathy, very risky, because we don't want to see what's down there. It's much nicer to have it 
or I don't know, it's not actually nicer, but somehow it feels nicer to ignore it. I don't have to let all that stuff come up because I prefer to have this kind of black and white narrative. Moabite, Israelite, you know, separate. Way long ago, now, totally different, not dependent upon anything. Everything started now, you know, (laughs) no context, just an individual. That would be nice if that actually worked. But I don't think it does. And I think the project that Jesus has given us requires us to, to repent of any kind of thinking that thinks that everything is now or that was then or they are they and not me. Because Jesus came uh, out of, out of the, 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 the tree of Obed and Jesse. You know, that's the songs we sing at Easter. Jesse is Obed's son. And the tree of Jesse is David. And Jesus is the new David, the king of kings who comes. And he messes it all up. He just messes it all up. He tells us to love people so extravagantly that we're going to have to change our whole lives. We can't accept the Israelite-Moabite distinction. And isn't it neat that his, great, that his grandmother was already messing with that? It's not like it's brand new. This is who God is. When we say God never changes, yeah, look for that. It's all over the Old Testament. These these glimmers of who God really is. And we get the full picture in Jesus who tells us that he loved the whole world. God came to love everyone, to make the whole world his family. Whether they accept the story or not, God has died and God is risen for them. All of that separation, Jesus has undone. And now we have to live as if that were true. And it takes this kind of empathy that, that reading an old story, looking at the old photo album, and saying, this is me. This, these are my people. It does something. It's the practice that we need to get into the, the hard work of connecting with the people who we are so separated from today, either by rivers, by geopolitical boundaries, by internal political assumptions that we have in our conversations with our our friends and family and neighbors. How am I going to get to them? How am I going to get to me? It's all going to take love and practice. So let's pray for that with Ruth. I have adapted the words that she spoke to Naomi as a prayer to God. God, don't urge us to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, we will go. And where you stay, we will stay. Your people, all the people of the world whom you love, which is all of them, will be our people, and you will be our God. May we know, Lord, that not even death separates us from you, and that promise is for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.